Okay. As you know, we've been going through the discourses of Matthew, or we are going through the discourses of Matthew this summer, um, all the way into fall. And we're about to finish our first one. So I've actually titled this message, How Do We Respond to This? I don't know if you guys have noticed, but that's kind of how I end every message. And uh, so Jesus is kind of drawing to the end of his first sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount. These are his closing remarks. And so this is kind of his, so how do we respond to this? So this is his kind of conclusion on everything we've learned over the past seven weeks, which I'm excited about. So we started kind of with Jesus outlining this flipped kingdom, this, this different reality. He was, we call them the Beatitudes. He was like, you know, blessed are the meek, um, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they're going to be satisfied. Blessed are those who um, are merciful, for they're going to obtain mercy. And we pretty quickly recognize that that's not the reality we live in. That that's not our world. We live in a world where the meek don't get much, and where those who are merciful generally don't get mercy, and those who hunger and thirst for justice rarely see it. And so he's obviously not talking about our world. He's talking about this different kingdom. He's talking about his kingdom that is advancing. He's talking about this kingdom that we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. This other kingdom is what he's, he's kind of outlining for us, this thing that we are trying to see come to earth. We're trying to help come to earth and then also expecting him to bring one day. So he lays that out. Um, and then uh, when Bill taught us, he, he talked about how we started to get into the heart issue, how Jesus started to outline in this kingdom things kind of go beneath the capability of the law, where he was like, oh, you've heard don't murder. I say don't even get angry without cause. You've heard it said don't commit adultery. I say don't even lust. He talks about the, how the, the gospel goes down where the law can't touch, and we kind of hung into this theme for a while. In the next passage, he got into the good things we do, giving, fasting, um, uh, uh, praying these the good things that we do, even those have a deeper issue. He's like, it's not okay just that you do good; it's how you do good, why you do good, what's going on in the heart. And then we talked the next week. Uh, he kind of started to outline prayer for us, and we talked about the Lord's prayer a little bit, and how there are some behaviors we can do that do create space for the gospel to work. That uh, things like prayer and worship, especially worship, we honed in on worship. These things that kind of take our eyes off of ourselves for a while. Give the gospel some room to get in and work on us. And then we got into judging. As Jesus says, judge that you be not judged. Judge not that you judge so you can be judged. Judge not so you be not judged. And he talked about how, uh, uh, we talked about the iceberg and how, you know, we have a tendency to pick on the part we can see on other people while ignoring this huge part that's underneath in the rest of us. This heart level stuff. We pick on other people's, um, murder but we were just full of anger and frustration. And we talked about, you know, who could quit their sin easier, the murderer or you who deals with anger? Like that, that's why the anger is a bigger issue. It's deeper. It's harder to quit that. It's hard to get that under control, um, which is why we need the gospel, because that, that deep level stuff only the gospel can touch. And then last week we got into asking and seeking and knocking. We got into... Um, how he kind of bookended this thing that we're kind of familiar with. And he said, you know, the, the precious things, those things that are important to you, those, those don't give the holy things, those beautiful things to the dogs. Don't throw those before swine. Don't take those to places where um, uh, to get satisfied, to get your needs met in places that are never going to ultimately take care of it, where you're going to get trampled if you go there. We talked about how a lot of us have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to, to take these deep burdens, these deep needs, and we go elsewhere to get them taken care of. We shop or we 
get into bad relationships or we eat or we drink or we look at pornography. We do all kinds of things trying to take care of these needs that only God can meet. And so he starts by saying, don't take what's holy before dogs. And then Jesus says, ask, seek, and not. Take these to God. What's most important to you, those, bring those to God. Bring them boldly and ask. And then he, he wraps up with like, once you kind of come to grips with those things, once you know what the deepest desires of your hearts are, he says, now therefore I say unto you, whatever you would have done, now go and do unto others. So he kind of, he kind of bait and switches us there. He's like, bring your deepest desires to God. Bring your, your deepest heart to God. Bring everything you hope that he'll do for you. Ask, seek, knock, don't quit. And then while you're waiting, go and do unto others some of those same things. If, you, if you're desperate that God takes care of you financially, that's awesome. Now take a buck and go find a beggar and, and, and do those same things for somebody else, the same things that you're desiring to have done. So that brings us to tonight where we kind of wrap up the Sermon on the Mount. So this is Jesus' response. Some people call it an action point in, in our Club 50, our Catholic 56 curriculum. We call it the application. Like you, So you learn the scripture and then you figure out, now what do I do with this? And this is kind of Jesus' version of that. Um, and he does it by laying out kind of two options. He says, enter by the narrow gate. There we go. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And few uh, find it. This is So he kind of ends on this binary conclusion, this kind of either or ones and zeros thing, which is a very Jewish thing to do. Moses did it Uh, when he kind of wrapped up his big sermon. Kind of the book of Deuteronomy is kind of him getting up in front of the people and restating everything they had learned in, you know, in the wilderness and, the, and everything they had kind of learned in the other books. And he says, see, I've set before you this day life and good or death and evil. He kind of, at the end of this thing, kind of gives them this binary conclusion, this choose. Joshua did it at the end of his ministry and life. They'd gone into the land and he was kind of drawing to the end. He said, if it seems uh, evil to you to serve the Lord, choose, your day to, uh, choose yourselves this day whom you shall serve whether the gods which your fathers served when they were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites and those who dwell in the land. But as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. So he kind of gives them this, he wraps up with this either or kind of thing. So it seems like every time the people of God are kind of on the edge of a promised land, on the edge of, a, of taking possession of something new, he starts with this kind of binary thing. And so Jesus is kind of doing the same thing. He's laying out this, this kind of promised land, this kingdom. He's introducing this kingdom life, this kingdom existence. And then he says, kind of at the end of it, and it starts with this binary choice. It starts with this either or decision. So it's very similar to what Moses had done, very similar to what Joshua had done. And he kind of wraps up with this in several different metaphors. There's two different ways, two different prophets, two different trees, two different disciples, two different houses. So he kind, of, he kind of retells the metaphor in several different ways where he's laying out these two different things. And we're pretty familiar with these, except there's some issues that I kind of want to pull out. And I want to see if we really are as familiar with these as we think we are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of deconstruct these a little bit. We're going to take them apart. It's going to get real ugly for a minute and real uncomfortable. And then we'll reconstruct at the end. Okay, so hang with me because it might get a little bit um, disturbing for a minute. So here's what we typically do. We typically start with this. Therefore, whoever hears my saying, these sayings of mine and does them 
is likened to a wise man who builds his house on a rock, right? So typically what we do with this passage, we preach this passage, we say this passage, is we say, so the key is to obey God's word, right? That's what we come out with. So what Jesus is saying here is the, the thing is, anyone who hears my word and obeys them is good. Like that's the, that's the good side, okay? And, uh, and so the binary choice is obedience and disobedience. That's the way we normally see it. It's, it's uh, obey or disobey, follow or don't follow. So what we hear Jesus saying is the way to destruction is wide. The way to life is narrow. There's a choice between sin and obedience. It's in or out language, sinner or saved, Christian and non. And this is one of the things I kind of hope to challenge tonight just a little bit. Because the second one, he goes, beware of false prophets, those who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. This is how Jesus starts to expound on this concept of these two different ways. And we, you know, we kind of make this cartoony. You know, we picture Wiley Coyote, you know, with a sheep thing over him. But the, the, the main point he's trying to make here is this thing looks exactly like a sheep. You know, I always think of like purse dogs. Like you're like, oh, look how cute it is. And they do that growl thing. And you're like, ooh, that thing's wicked. Yeah, that's, so you think it's cute, but it's not. So his main point here is that this is supposed to look just like a sheep. Okay, he's saying that this is a, this is a wolf in a sheep's clothing. This thing looks like everything else. In fact, Jesus is kind of creating this uncomfortable duality with this entire response. You've got two trees, both of which have fruit. One is bad, one is good. And the word bad in the Greek actually means poisonous. So he's laying out two trees, both with fruit. One has poison fruit, one has non-poison fruit. How do you tell the difference? I mean, you can be in what they call that early adapter, the difference between an innovator and an early adapter. Is the innovator is the guy that eats the fruit and falls over dead, and the early adapter is the one that goes, don't eat that fruit. We're going to go this way. You know, that's the, the early adapters are the ones who actually succeed. The innovators usually fail. But that you can do it that way. Um, he also lays out the, these two disciples. The difference between these two disciples is um, it's hard to see. They both do good stuff. Like everything they're both doing is good. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not, you know, do miracles? So again, you've got tree with fruit on it. How do you tell? Which one's good? You've got two houses. They're both built. They're both good, solid, sturdy houses. How do you tell? They look identical. That seems to be the point he's making as he's drawing a, a, a distinction between two things that look identical. And this is where it gets truly uh, frightening, honestly. So it seems like he's, stre- he's stressing that according to outward appearances, these choices all look the same. In fact, if we get back into this, these two different ways, this is where it really started to bother me. I, I think of the two ways as we took this trip to Florida. And um, we were there like days before. I can't remember the name of the, hur- the hurricane. I tried and then I was too lazy to look it up. I planned on looking it up. But um, uh, you remember when that huge hurricane like plowed through the Carolinas and did a bunch of damage? No, Katrina was down south, wasn't it? Yeah, Katrina was New Orleans. This one was over on the west. Anyway, this was just a few months after that, and so everybody was in, like, hurricane, like, overreaction mode. And so we're in Florida, like, a day before a hurricane came. And so they're evacuating Florida, and everybody goes up, what's that, I-95, the big highway that goes out of there, and, and it's, they opened up both sides going the same direction. It was bumper to bumper forever. And we jump on this little tiny nothing of a backcountry road. And it was just smooth sailing all the way to New Orleans. We got out of the way. We never slowed down. It was just like, I always picture that, like this huge, 
you know, wide as the way and a ton of people that goes to destruction, you know, that to me, 12 hours in bumper to bumper traffic is destruction. If, if, if hell's not that bad, then it's pretty, it's, you know, it's gotta be close. And so, and we were on this tiny little way that nobody went on that we were just smooth sailing. That's what I always think of. And we're destination people. So what we see is two roads going to two different places, right? One going to heaven, one going to hell. Like that's the way we generally think of this passage of, of wide is the way that goes to life and, or, or that goes to destruction. Narrow is the way that goes to life. And so that's how we think about it. Except this is the metaphor that the people would have seen. Because these are, these are, um, Jesus, if you remember, southern Israel down in Judea is where Jerusalem is. It's where the, the, the city is. There, then you got Samaria and then you have, uh, Galilee, which is where Jesus is teaching this message. But these are pilgrimage people. So at least three times a year, they all pack up and go down to Jerusalem and, it, and there are huge festival days and getting into the city is always a big struggle. And so they've got the main gates, you know, where a lot of people can go through and they get totally bogged down with people selling on the streets and with, and they're, they're a mess to get through. And then you've got other little, the dung gate, the, uh, the tanner's gate. Some of those are small and they're kind of like the little, the little, uh, uh, you know, shortcuts and secret, pat, you know, secret ways everybody seems to know to get into things that, you know, without having to go through all the traffic. And so he's talking about that. So this is the picture he's kind of laying out. He's like, but here's the confusing part of, our, of the way we generally take this metaphor. Both gates go into the same city. So we think of this in terms of two roads that go to two totally different places. He's laying out a metaphor of two different gates going into the same city. Which is confusing. This is the deconstruction part. This is the, we're going to put this back together. So our destination mentality doesn't really work with the gate metaphor. And he says gates. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And narrow is the gate that leads to life. So I don't think the original hearer would have heard what we hear. I think they would have heard something else. So this calls the entire passage into question or at least some of the ways we think about it. So we go to the next section, and he says, For many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform miracles? And then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And this is where it gets really spooky for me for a couple reasons. Number one, these people are talking in the, about Jesus. They're preaching in Jesus' name. And because the name of Jesus is powerful in and of itself, they're still getting results. They're still seeing supernatural things happen because the name of Jesus is powerful. It has nothing to do with them. But what's even more frightening is they seem surprised. If you read this, they seem as shocked as anybody that they had missed something, right? They're like, didn't we wait? I've been preaching in your name. So obviously we want to stay away from their fate, probably stay away from them, which brings into question, how can we spot these folks? When you go to church, when you come to this church, how can you be sure it's not this church? Me as a pastor, when you look at my life and, and my teaching, how can you be sure I'm not this guy? And the blunt and uncomfortable answer is you can't. You absolutely can't be sure. 
If I'm preaching the scripture and I'm preaching in Jesus' name, then good things are happening in our community and good things are happening in the wider city and good things are happening, you're automatically going to assume that me and Jesus are buds, that we're, that we're tight. And Jesus makes it very clear, you can't know that. According to this passage, you absolutely cannot know what's going on in my heart. You can know that Jesus' name is powerful. You can know that the gospel is powerful and the gospel is good. But you cannot know what's going on in my heart. Before we start to kind of reconstruct this, I got one more. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it, was, it had a foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does them and put, and, or does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew up against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So here we are again, two houses. As far as we can tell, they're identical houses. He doesn't say anything about the houses. The houses seem solid. They both seem solid. They seem like two good houses. As far as we know, they're identical. Until the horror comes. I pulled up one of these pictures. You guys have seen all these? When like a sinkhole opens up and just like swallows a house. I think this one's in Florida. Why would you build on a swamp ever? Like it just doesn't make any sense. But... What always cracks me up about this is I was in construction, so you know this house passed inspection. You know they did everything they were supposed to do. Somebody went in and walked through that thing and said, yeah, it's solid, everything's good. You know, they did all the stuff they're supposed to do. Somebody moved into that thinking it was okay. And this is the image Jesus is giving. A solid house passes inspection. Everything's fine. Like, he didn't say anything about the builder. He didn't say anything about the the building procedures. As far as we know, good house. Both houses are good. No way to know one's bad. We bought a bunch of houses back after the fall, and that was the first thing we would do. Like, we'd ignore all the horror upstairs, no matter how bad things were broken up. We'd go straight to the foundation. Foundation solid? Okay, good. We can do all the rest of this. This is cosmetic stuff. We can fix other things. We walked into several houses that looked real good. Like, man, there's almost no work to be done here. You go down and monster crack right through the foundation, and you just walk off. You don't even think about it. Not even worth it. Until the storm comes, until the sinkhole opens, whatever, they're, they're, they're identical. And that seems to be Jesus' point that he's laying over and over again. So let's go back. Two ways into the same city. A sheep and wolves who look just like sheep. Two trees, both that have fruit. Two preachers with effective ministries. Two well-built houses. This is his clo- these are his closing metaphors. And we usually make this binary. Obey God, disobey God, right? We usually say, you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Everybody goes down that thing. All the people are just running, chasing sin, blah, blah. Narrow is the way that leads to life. The problem with that is these are the concluding remarks of a whole sermon. This isn't, uh, this isn't spoken just all by itself. So Jesus is saying this in the context of everything he's said so far in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, this is the wrap-up of a full sermon that I think, I mean, if I were to read the whole thing, it might have only been, I'm assuming he said more than this because this would have been like a 10-minute message, maybe, you know. But this is his concluding remarks. And so far, 
in the concluding remarks, he hasn't said a single thing about sin or sinner, what we would classically call sin or sinners. He's talked about salty salt and unsalty salt, both salt. He's talked about hidden light and shining light, still light. He's compared, he didn't compare a murderer and a non-murderer. He compared a non-murderer with anger in his heart and a non-murderer without anger in his heart. He didn't compare an adulterer and a faithful husband. He compared a faithful husband who has lust and a faithful husband who doesn't. He hasn't said anything about sin so far. I mean, other than underneath sin. There's no disobedience going on in this sermon. When he talks about the speck and the plank, both people have junk in their eye. It's not somebody with a clear eye and somebody with a stuff in their eye. We've got two people with stuff in their eye. Jesus' distinct, distinction does not seem to be between sinner and saint. It does not seem to be between the disobedient and the obedient. His problem doesn't seem to be with sin. It seems to be with religion. The problem Jesus seems to be picking on in this whole thing is people who have the outward obedience without the inward change. He hasn't hasn't picked on any sinners in this whole message yet. So why would he pick on them in his conclusion? This is what he's done through the entire message. Through the entire message, he's picked on two people that look identical. Two faithful husbands. Two non-murderers. I don't know what you'd call that. That's what he's picked on through this whole message. Everybody he's talked about, every situation he's talked about, has been two people that look identical on the outside. That's the distinction he's making here. So it doesn't make any sense that his conclusion would be, now that you've heard everything I'm teaching, here's the conclusion. Try harder. Work more. Obey better. Now that you've heard my words, go and obey them and do better. And then you'll find life. Because he hasn't said that. He's never, he hasn't said that anywhere in this message. Both gates go to the same city. Two animals that look like sheep. Two trees that have fruit. Two preachers that have miracles. Two houses that are standing. The gospel never distinguishes between good guy and bad guy. That's the main point. The gospel never distinguishes between good guys and bad guys. The gospel saves bad guys. Period. We have the tendency to think that the gospel is this dividing thing where the good go on one side and the bad go on the other. The gospel, if we're in a Western movie, Jesus is the only one wearing a white hat. All the rest of us get black hats. We're all bad guys. The gospel saves sinners. Nowhere in Jesus' wrap-up remarks is there a distinction between the good and the bad. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. So as Jesus outlines his kingdom, he starts to create this, this idea of what his kingdom looks like. The church tends to miss that, that, okay, we put it this way. The church generally has three words that we love. Sometimes we'll cut it to two. You should not. Those are like our big three words, right? You should not. Sometimes we'll go, you should. 
But I think our three words are supposed to be, especially as we read the Sermon on the Mount, is yeah, me too. I think those are supposed to be our three words. Yeah, me too. Someone comes and like, oh man, I've got major issues. Yeah, me too. No, I've committed adultery. Yeah, me too. Maybe not outwardly, but yeah, me too. I'm a murderer. Yeah, me too. At least one of my kids every day. If we're talking anger, I kill one of my kids at least every day. Yeah, me too. Like, I am absolutely no better than you. That's the hardest thing about preaching the gospel, is that this is where I should sit. I should not be up there. I should be down here going, yeah, amen, preacher. You are dashingly handsome. No. Yeah, me too. Those should be our words. That's what Jesus is trying to get to. Do I give? Well, yeah, but I kind of like when people know it. So, I don't know if that counts. Yeah, me too. This is why Jesus hung out with sinners and yelled at Pharisees. It wasn't because he, like, it wasn't because he was trying to tell the Pharisees it's better to live like a sinner. Like, in no way was he saying, like, living in sin is better. His issue was the Pharisees was that they were, they were living right on the outside, which made it super easy to miss what was going on on the inside. Like, if you commit adultery, you kind of know you have a lust problem. If you murder, you know you've got some anger issues to work out. Like, the, the inside stuff is just wildly revealed in what you're doing outwardly. But when you're living right outwardly, it's spooky because you can be hiding all the inward stuff that the gospel wants to work on. So Jesus' like, attraction to sinners was the fact that it was just all out in the open, which makes it way easier to work on. The sick need a physician, right? And so they know, they come in limping, they know what needs worked on, they know where their issues are. This is the danger of in-out language. This is the danger of saved, unsaved, Christian, unchristian, believer, unbeliever. It's not that these realities aren't a thing. It's not that they're not a reality. It's that the second you start using in-out language, you naturally put yourself in. And it's not that, that they're not out. You just naturally see yourself in and you have a tendency to think, I'm fine, I'm in. Now I'm in. Now that's all good. If you ever feel like the gospel is done with you, you've missed something greatly. If you ever feel like the gospel is done working on you, if you ever feel so in that you think you're done, you've completely missed it. And you're getting really close to that Pharisee line. Yeah, me too. So let's start to reconstruct. Before we wrap all this up, I'm going to try to make some sense of it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And this can be one of the most confusing passages of all Scripture for me because it's, it's hard to read this and not go, okay, clearly I'm supposed to obey his words. I'm supposed to, to do these things. He said, if I want to build my house on the rock, I have to do these practices that Jesus just laid out. Take his words, live them. That's the, that's the Sermon on the Mount. Except, I pulled out just for fun, and all I just focused on the kind of imperative language, the kind of command-based stuff that he has said so far in this message. Rejoice when you're persecuted. Let your light shine before men. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you're angry, 
you better make sure you fix that before you even come into church um, because your time here is not right if you didn't fix something out there. If, if you sin with your eye, pluck it out. If you sin with your hand, cut it off. Don't just keep your promises, but be such a person of integrity that no one even expects you to make them because your yes is such a solid yes. Your no is such a solid no. And nobody even wants you to make a promise because they know you're going to do everything you say. Turn the other cheek. Oh, man, I heard some commentary on this one this week. Where, where this comes from, turn the other cheek, is, is in the Jewish culture, when they greet, they give a kiss, you know, Paul's holy kiss, and you, the, the elder would give his cheek and the younger would give the kiss. It was just the, the way they would do it. And so if someone, if you give someone your cheek, they kiss it, you give them the other cheek, they kiss that one too. So what they're is most likely saying is when you offer someone a cheek and they give you a slap instead, you, you're so committed to this relationship, you offer the other one hoping to get the kiss, hoping that, and, and you risk the second slap. That has absolutely nothing to do with my message. I just thought it was cool, so that's for free. Love your enemy. That's in the list. Go the extra mile. If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat too. Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Don't just give, pray, and fast. Make sure you do it right and perfectly. Forgive completely. Lay up no treasures in Heaven. Never get anxious and don't judge. That's the list. That's all you got to do. Just do. Just take my words and put them into practice and you'll be on a rock. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, I'll liken to a man who built them on the rock. At the end of the day, in my opinion, there has only been one human being that has ever lived that kept that list. I don't think we were supposed to go, okay, I gotta work harder. I gotta, I gotta dig in. I gotta keep, I gotta obey this stuff so my house is on a rock. I think we were supposed to hear this sermon and go, holy crap, my house is on sand. I am on sand. I am standing on sand. If that's what it takes to be on a rock, I am standing on sand because I can't do that. That is out of my reach. My house may look fine now. I might be doing okay now. I might not be committing adultery now. I might not be a murderer now. I might be doing a good job. I might be a good guy. I might be a nice guy. But right now my house is standing on sand. If you're telling me I can never lust, I can never get angry without cause, I have to show love to my enemy, my motives for doing good always have to be completely unselfish, if you're telling me I have to be perfect like my Father in Heaven is perfect, if that's the standard, then I'm on sand. And there it is. I think that is the conclusion he's trying to make. You are now prepped and ready for the Gospel, for the good news. Once you know you're on sand, now you're ready for the Gospel. Because here's the thing we sometimes miss. When he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he had not yet died for humanity. So if he had somehow just laid out a good work plan by which you can get to heaven, why die? If what he just gave us was the way to eternal life, then why die for everyone? If not for the fact that he knew we absolutely could not live that way. One of the problems that we had made was we had lowered the bar 
to something doable. It always cracks me up when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he was like, how do I get to heaven? He's like, we'll keep the commandments. He's like, I have since I was young, all of them. I was like, what? How can you ever feel that way? But that's what, they, that's what had happened. They had, they had kind of lowered the bar to something doable. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is like, no, 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 no. I'm so sorry. You thought the bar was down there. No, 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 it's up here. The bar's way up here. To which we go, if that's true, then I'm standing on sand. And it's going to fall. So as Jesus outlines this upside-down kingdom and all that it entails, our reaction is supposed to be to go, I can't do that. I know I can't do that. And then we find ourselves that center on the hill where the the righteous person is going, I'm so glad you made me the way you did. I'm so glad I'm doing all this thing. The sinner can't even look to heaven and he's like, forgive me. He says he beats his breast. Forgive me, God, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the one they got it. That's the one that looked at the standard and went, I, God, I'm so sorry. I'm not that. I'm not that. I, I can't. I can't do that. I could never pull that off. To which Jesus says, good, now we can get somewhere. Move out of that beach house and move in with me. I think that's the point. So how do we respond to this? So during our response time, I'm going to issue an invitation. If you are striving, if you are working hard, if you feel like you're never enough, if you feel like God is always disappointed in you, if you feel like no matter what I do, I can never quite get there, if you're constantly feeling like you're not enough, this invitation is for you. Because here's the thing, if you pull off the life that you're striving for, if you actually manage to do what you think you're supposed to do, if you, if, if you actually feel like this is how I have to live and you achieve it, now you're in really dangerous territory. Now you're in really spooky ground because now you're the one that he's been talking about through this whole message who has everything right on the outside and the gospel's done no work on the inside. You're standing on soft sand. So if you're striving, if you're working, if you're, if you're struggling to feel like God loves you, if you're struggling to feel like, like you're doing a good enough job, I invite you to lay that down. Because there is another house. There's a different house than the one we've built. It's the party house. That's where you want to be is in that house. Change houses. In that house, you don't have to strive. I, I will go so far as to say, in that house, you can do whatever you want. Which makes everybody really uncomfortable. Because in that house, there's no rules. And my little litmus test is, if you just heard that and it made you really uncomfortable, then, you, then you're, you're probably living in the wrong house. If everything in you goes, okay, I dig what you're saying, but the no rules thing, easy. That's too far. People just run crazy, right? That's what we do. We're like, yes, I love grace. I love grace. You can do whatever you want. Hold up. 
You can't do whatever you want. I mean, come on, you can't, there's some rules. And everyone thinks the same thing. If, if you give people that allowance, if you say, no, guys, God's not concerned. He, he knows you can't do it. That's why Jesus died. Because he knows you can't keep the rules. When you tell people that, everybody gets really uncomfortable if you tell them that, no, you can, you can literally do whatever you want if you believe in Jesus. It makes us uncomfortable because we're afraid everybody's going to run wild. And I would say, if you hear about grace and you run wild, you're probably in better shape because then you're going to hit bottom and cry out to God. Because it might be real dangerous to never do that and stand there thinking you're okay and realize that you might come someday and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. I went to church my whole life. No, 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 no. I preached in your name. No, 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 no. I... It might be safer to run wild and hit bottom and be the prodigal son who comes to himself and goes, what am I doing? What am I doing? So if pushing grace makes you run wild, that might be the place to go. I know it's weird to say that. But sometimes when we find ourselves in the pig slop going, I don't know what happened in my life. And what I love mm, is when the prodigal son got up and he had no intention of coming back to be a son, right? He wanted to be a servant. He was like, I mean, my, my father feeds his servants better than I'm eating. If I'll get hired on, like surely they'll hire me on as a servant. I'll go back and be a servant. Then at least I'll have three squares, you know, and I'll be able to eat. So he goes back ready. Hey, I'm not worthy to be your son, blah, blah. And the father wouldn't have any of that. My is get the robe, kill the fatted calf, get a ring. My, yeah, ran to meet him. Saw him afar off and ran to meet him. I know preachers aren't supposed to say this. I think the pig pen is a safer place to be. Because you've got a better chance of coming back to the Father. If, you, if you're living in that place where you're like, I have to do this, I have to do this. If I don't do this, God will be disappointed in me. If I don't do this, I'll never get a blessing. If I don't do this, like if you're living in that place, the pig pen is safer. Because Jesus spent this whole sermon preaching against that guy. Going, no, 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 look out for that person that looks good on the outside. Look out for that person that's, that's, that's got it all together. Look out for that person that doesn't let the gospel get in to your heart and do a work. But here's the caveat. <laughs> you knew there was going to be one. And this isn't, this isn't a command. This is just a warning. And this is real. So if, if this scares you, then don't go to Jesus. Because if you do that, if you come to Jesus, if you invite the gospel in, if you agree to go, I'm just going to come to Jesus as I am, he's going to want to change you. And you're going to want to change. I'm not saying, and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not like doing a bait and switch, like you do whatever you want, yeah, we love you, except we're going to ask you to do this and this and this. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying when the gospel gets in your heart and works on you, suddenly you find yourself wanting to change. Like you find yourself wanting to be different. And the awesome thing is when the Holy Spirit gets in there and makes you want to be different, He also empowers you to do it. 
And suddenly these things that you were striving for, you were trying so hard for, you were working on, just start taking care of themselves. And you start actually noticing you're becoming the person that you want to be. This has been going on in my life lately. The Holy Spirit's been picking on me like crazy. And the, the exciting thing about it is when, when it's true conviction, when you're, when, you're, when you're not striving, you're not trying. I mean, if you guys know me, you know, I don't try super hard at, at being a good Christian. I just, like, there's some things I know drive some people crazy. And they're like, seriously, dude, you're a, you're a pastor. Like, I know, right? <laughs> like, I know. Isn't that crazy? But the cool thing is when you, when you do live that way and the Holy Spirit shows up to pick on you, it's a joy. It's actually, and I know it seems crazy that conviction or guilt or whatever would be a beautiful thing, but you actually like it because you're like excited. Like if, when, when the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's been picking on me about the way I, I do stuff at home and stuff at work. And when I get tangled up at work, I'm very distant and hard to get a hold of mentally at home. And the Holy Spirit's been picking on me about that and about kind of checking out. And, and, and I do it in this kind of victim way. Like, I can't help it. I've got a lot going on at work right now. Like, I have, like it gives me an excuse. And the Holy Spirit's been convicting my heart. And I'm like stoked about it because I'm like, holy crap, if we can get that out of there, that would be awesome. Like, I would, if you're going to empower me to pull that out of there, by all means, let's get to work. What do I need to do? Which really sucks because he told me I need to weed the garden. I kid you not. I hate weeding and I'm watering today. And the Holy Spirit promised me if I would get on my knees and weed this garden, he's going to just fill me up with metaphors that I'm going to need to preach. I'm like, oh, God, I hate weeding. But I'm excited for the, for the byproduct. I'm super excited. And so conviction becomes a joy. It becomes fun. So here's my, here's my little bit of advice. If, if something hits you and it makes you feel guilty and it feels heavy and it feels like a burden, ditch that. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's, that's, that's the desire to conform. That's the desire to, to prove something. That's, that might even be Satan trying to pull you back into that, that wolf in sheep's clothing place. Shuck that. That's not God. Even if, even if what it's convicting you of is good, if it comes that way, it's not God. If it comes and suddenly you're like, yes, I want to deal with this. Yeah, and, it, and it comes with hope. And it might come through reading the scripture. It might come through someone else in the church. It might come through watching the news and something just convicts you. And you're like, man, it bothers me. It might come from just a remarkable sermon because you have such a fantastic pastor. No. Who knows how you get it? But when it comes and it feels right, and you're because we here's the thing: we serve a big God. I'm, here's this is my advice in the blunt way: if it's not bothering Jesus, don't let it bother you. If the Holy Spirit seems fine with the way you're living, then you should seem fine with the way you're living. We serve a big God. He knows how to convict your heart. He knows how to change you. He knows how to show up and go, "Hey, we need to work on this." And you go, okay, let's work on this. You know, and, and it'll come with hope. It'll, but if, it, if, if, if you're living, the Holy Spirit's not revealing anything to you, just live. Just enjoy life and be joyful. I think if the world had more joyful Christians out just being joyful, it would probably be a lot more attractive. Jesus would probably be a lot more attractive. 
Just trust that the Holy Spirit's powerful. We serve a big God. When he's ready to work on your heart, he's going to work on your heart. And then he's going to come with the power to do it. Otherwise, it's like we just walk around like, I'm so terrible, I've got to find, oh, why do I keep doing this? Uh, you know, we just beat ourselves up. And usually the Holy Spirit's are like, I don't care about that. I want to work on this over here. Let's work on this over here. Who cares about that? That stuff's nothing. Like, let the Holy Spirit convict you. Trust the Holy Spirit to work on your heart. This comes in a lot of forms. We, you know, we feel like, oh, I gotta, I gotta talk to people about God. I gotta witness to people. I gotta, you know. And then suddenly, I don't know if it's ever happened to you guys, but there comes a point where the Holy Spirit just grabs a hold of you, and you're like, you're so excited to talk about Jesus. It just pops up. You know, you find yourself in a spiritual conversation, and somebody's like, we were talking about golf. How did this happen? Like, and you're just like, man, I just get. And there's nothing, no responsibility in it. You just can't wait to talk about Jesus. Like, that's where we want to get, not where it's like, oh, I've got to witness to people and I've got to tell somebody about Jesus. And We don't want to live that way. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him, walk in them, which I love because it says, We are his workmanship. He created us in Christ Jesus. He prepared the work, and all we have to do is walk in them. What I love about, and I didn't even make this up, this is in my, uh, uh, my Greek dictionary. It says, one of the definitions for walk is to follow as a companion or a devotee. So like, like to walk doesn't even mean to like charge on our own. It just means to follow like a tag along. So he made good works. He saved us. He did all the stuff. And all we got to do is follow to do the good works. That's our job, is just to follow. So as we close the Sermon on the Mount, I hope above all else we would come to the conclusion that we need Jesus. Every single one of us needs Jesus. Maybe you don't murder. That's great. How about anger? How are you doing at getting that out of there? Maybe you don't commit adultery. How about lust? Maybe you, uh, you know, maybe you're really good at loving your kids, loving the one neighbor who's a really nice guy and you get along great. How about that enemy? How about those people that really drive you crazy? How about that other neighbor that lets his trash blow in your yard? How are you doing at loving him? Like the gospel is not done working on us, any of us. We need Jesus. So if you come away from the Sermon on the Mount and you feel like you have a new job to do, then we did it wrong. Because the Sermon on the Mount is supposed to bring us to the cross. We're supposed to come away saying, I need you to build my house because mine's on sand. I want to move in with you. I want Jesus. And here's the thing. I'm super excited about this next. We're going from the Sermon on the Mount to what we call the missionary discourse where Jesus sends out the 12 and it's coming at a really cool time. I didn't plan this out. I'm not this smart. But it's coming right when we're getting ready to do a bunch of outreach into the community. So it's going to be really fun to like study, you know, what these guys did when they went out. And they went out in power and it's, it's, I'm getting cranked up because they went out and did some really cool things. We're getting ready to go out into the community. And, uh, and so it's, it's really fun. But I can promise you, I can promise you um, we do not walk out into the community in power if we're burdened down by feeling like we constantly have 
to prove ourselves to God or we're constantly a disappointment or we're never quite enough. If we can't walk in the victory that Jesus paid for on the cross, then why would anybody want what we have? What do we, like, what do we have to, if, if, you know, if, if what we're offering is, hey, come be with us. We got this wicked list we got to do. Come help. Like, why would we do that? But if we can grasp that Jesus has bought us life, real life, abundant life, then we go out of the community shining like that light he talked about. Then we go out like salt. I love that salt metaphor. Because nobody, I, I don't eat corn on the cob without salt. Anybody eat corn on the cob without salt? I don't eat corn. Dave, gross, man. You've got to try salt. It's so much better. But never, and he says, you are the salt of the earth. That's us. Never do I eat corn on the cob and put it down and go, oh, babe, that was good salt. Because that's not what salt does. Salt makes the other thing taste better. So we go out in the world as salt and people taste and they go, wow, your Jesus is awesome. They look right past the salt. It's not the salt we're trying to draw them to. It's the corn on the cob. So our goal this summer as we go out into the community, as we bring kids in here for VBS and, and bless them, and as we reach out to other people, is to do it in freedom. To do it in, in the victory that Jesus paid for. So we're getting ready to sing um, one last song after we go to the table called Come to the Altar. And my hopes are that as we stand and sing, we might just do that. Just go to Jesus. And, and hopefully, um, you guys know, I, I, we do the prayer of contrition every Sunday. I, the thing I love most about talking about sin is that it drives us back to the cross. And I don't, I don't like to pick on any particular sin. I like to wrap us all up and say the, the beautiful thing about recognizing you're a sinner is that recognizing you serve an amazing God who loved you too much to leave you that way. And so I pray as we sing this last song that our hearts would just go to the altar and praise God for the work he's done for us.